Enter the Ebony Tower Podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. This episode is sponsored by Topcoat. Topcoat believes that bold nails are for bosses, so they created bold, beautiful shades that work for the classroom, the office, even the beach. Also, as an added plus, all Topcoat polish is carcinogen-free, vegan, and paraben-free. Topcoat is proud to be a woman-owned and black-owned business, so visit their site today at www.taupecoat.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to an episode of Tales from the Tower. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Riddhi Bandari. She's a visiting assistant professor at University of Richmond, and she's a newly minted PhD who is a visiting scholar from India. Hi, Riddhi. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Daphne. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this. Yes, we appreciate having you on. Today, Dr. Bendari will talk to us about her story of navigating academia as an international scholar. She'll talk to us about some of the general issues that she's faced or that international scholars might face in terms of navigating academia and visa issues as an immigrant. So, Let's get started. So, Vridi, maybe you can just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. So, where you're from, how you decided to pursue a PhD in the U.S. as well. Um, all right. So, as you already mentioned, Rachel, I'm an anthropologist and I'm from India. I kind of work on or I'm drawn to explore the affective aspects of everyday political and economic life. Um, my research is specifically around the market and neighborhood uh, that surrounds the Taj Mahal, which is a heritage monument in India. And that's also a big tourist attraction. Um, my dissertation and fu- future research, hopefully, uh, focuses on petty corruption, informal leadership, and economic risks. And I approach these through the anxieties that people uh, experience and the opportunities that they see as all of these facets of their lives unfold. I'm in India, I'm from the northern Himalayan state of Uttarakhand, which was sort of a baby state. It was created in 2002 out of an older state. My parents weirdly live next to an old tiger reserve, um, but I've mostly lived in Delhi, so I'm sort of urban India. And um, I came to the United States in 2010 for my PhD at American University in D.C., and why I decided to do so is still, I guess, there are some fuzzy details with that. But um, it's generally a bit of a trend in India. A lot of my peers, uh, when I was in grad school there doing my master's, were applying and coming away. And it just seemed like the thing that everyone was doing. And I sort of followed that trend. Personally, I think it was I I liked this idea of moving around, especially when I was young. And if I got funding, it would be like someone else paying me to do that. And I guess finally, a lot of the South Asian scholars, the big names, Veena Das, who is my absolute favorite, as Rachel knows, they're all (laughs) here in the United States. And I guess I was just sort of hoping to mimic their experience and hoping that 
some of their brilliance would rub off just by copying their journey. So yeah, that's kind of how I ended up here. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Very interesting story. And we're happy to have you uh, to share your work and to continue a tradition of uh, international scholars bringing their expertise, their experience, and their knowledge to U.S. universities. Thank you. Um, so can you tell us uh, a little bit about your experience in academia, navigating graduate school, and some of the particular issues that you would say have been unique to your experience as an international scholar? Overall, I think right off the bat, I'll say that it's been a very fulfilling experience, uh, even though at several points in that entire journey through grad school and now with work has been deeply anxiety ridden. And that's not something specific to international scholars, because we all know how academia and jobs in academia are um, shrinking and there's uh, immense, this immense shift towards casual contract adjunct Labor. But I do think that international scholars uh, sort of feel the heavier brunt of that. A lot of the positions or fellowships for grad students that are available um, are specific to U.S. citizens. So one of my big, big advice to students would be to get on figuring out what scholarships are available um, for international scholars early on and start working towards that make that make that list. I think one of the things that academics perhaps don't talk about so much, or maybe I haven't heard enough of it, is, um, is the importance of social ties, especially for international scholars coming away. Because, you know, literally when I showed up, I didn't even know one person. I don't have family extended or otherwise in the United States at all. So I, I was literally two bags and me in a completely uh, foreign location. So I just want to, you know, sort of shout out to the importance of social ties here. I made great friends and um, the friends were both in and outside of academia. And that support system or support network has been very crucial in um allowing me to do things that I did with the level of competence that I've done. If I didn't have uh, have my social network, I think things would be just so much harder and less fun. So yeah, a big shout out to that. I think one persisting undercurrent that's sort of like a pet peeve, but I think I've learned to be a little bit more patient patient with is these cultural differences that uh, we sort of constantly uh, find ourselves against as international students um, and scholars in the United States. Um, People and colleagues, uh, among others, consistently struggle with our spoken and written words um, of immigrants at large. And that's just something, I guess, that requires a lot of patience to navigate. And I understand that difference can be challenging sometimes. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey that everyone sort of has to meet others halfway. So I don't know if you guys have heard of the recent Duke University episode where the grad, the Chinese grad students uh, were sent out this email and they were asked to sort of... To not speak in their, yes. their language. It yes. was very... Yes. That, 
that made me very angry. And it was in their free time. So, you know, this is really not in a classroom and stuff. So, you know, that's obviously an extreme example. Uh, but uh, the undercurrents of this constantly run in academia. And I think international scholars come up with with it again and again. Can you give us like a personal example, something that obviously isn't too, you know, you mm-hmm. feel comfortable sharing, but... Um, sure. I think uh, with my writing, and this is, again, it's not very personal, but when I'd write term papers, research papers, proposals, a lot of feedback I would get would be about the hanging intonations, which apparently is a big deal here in the United States, or grammatical structure of languages, or the na- or the the absence of a linear narrative. But hanging intonations is really not, uh, you know, if you pick any post-colonial scholar's account, you'll find it littered with hanging intonations. So that's like not an issue in, you know, in India. Uh, The way Indian literature is generally organized is in a cyclical narrative. So there are like circles within circles and circles and multiple narratives that run through a single story. And that's just how, since we read that way, I think we learn to write that way and we recognize that as a legitimate form of learning and writing and reading. But I think when a lot of Americans read my papers, they find it fairly frustrating that the story is not progressing in a linear fashion. Wow, yeah. I feel like that is an example of why Mm -hmm. it's so important for people to read different scholars from different countries work in the classroom, right? Indeed, absolutely. Oh, and I just, I mean, and then there are these other, I guess, less, less prolonged, but this odd comment every now and then, which would be about, oh, you had to learn English to come to the United States. Or, oh, oh, uh, you know, English is your second language. And it's like, oh, you, I mean, I'm not sure where it falls, but if you read colonialism, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> um, so, Riddy, can you tell us something that maybe our listeners would find surprising about the visa process? I guess it's important to figure out the right visa category. And I say this not for students, because um, as students, you're only uh, part of the F1 visa, which is straightforward. But, you know, as you become early career scholars, uh, there are types of visas. And I guess it's important to figure out which visa category will work for you in the long term and not necessarily immediately. And um, somehow figure out a way to lobby for that visa category with your hiring institution. This is something I would strongly recommend, but I don't know how doable that is in practice. This is basically just about flagging an issue rather than providing a solution. But I think general visa situations, I think I'm consistently struck by the randomness of the application of rules. But then as, I guess, observers of the state and bureaucracy, we already know that. Yet when it happens to you, it's it just somehow like comes alive or comes to life. So I'm currently on a J-1 visa. Uh, and I think my big, big, uh, not necessarily advice, but piece of information for other international scholars would be to be aware that J-1, which is a research visa, comes with different strings attached and that these strings can be activated randomly. So just be mindful and cautious 
of what mm. you're getting into. Yeah. So Riddhi, can you tell us a little bit about how you made the transition from a PhD uh, student and candidate to a visiting assistant professorship position? I guess the last few years of writing your dissertation, I guess particularly the last year of writing your dissertation is the one where everyone is applying for all the jobs that are in the market. I was kind of doing that as well. I did go back to India for almost a year between graduating and coming back for for a job here. And even when I was back in India and working, I uh, I had my eyes on the academic market, both in the United States and elsewhere. And I found this position through one of the listservs. And I think this is a good time to just shout out again to all the international scholars to keep abreast of all the all the job opportunity list serves. I know it can be frustrating because there are so many of them. And a lot of the times they are very selective. So, you know, you have to really put time and effort into figuring out which ones are applicable. But it's it's worth the effort. I mean, and there's also no way around the effort. So I kind of find, found this position through one of uh, the job list serves and I applied for it. And I think it was a fairly straightforward position. This was an international visiting scholarship for for a one-year period. And I was a non-tenure track uh, full-time faculty member when I came here. And I guess when I came, uh, I'm currently at the University of Richmond in the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. It's been kind of great being here. I get a lot of resources and the time to do my own work. I don't have a terribly heavy teaching load at all. I feel like I'm kind of lucky with this job. I teach one class per semester and um, I enjoy that tremendously. So that's how I came here. And uh, towards the end of my tenure, the faculty or whoever's responsible for this work, I guess they were kind of interested in having me around and asked me to stay on a year longer. And I was happy to do that. So yeah, that's basically the journey from grad student to my first employment. And this is a good segue from visa categories. I moved from an F1 student visa to a J1 research visa. And I guess I didn't grasp the full gravity of was the home residency rule requirement that comes attached with the J1 visa. The first time I got the visa, the HRR, which is the home residency rule, I wasn't required to fulfill it or it was waived. So I didn't pay it any attention because it didn't impact me. But when I had to renew my visa, I realized I came back with the annotation that I had to serve or fulfill the home residency rule which is that I need to go back to India and be there for a period of two years before I can reapply for a visa here. So, yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I take responsibility for whatever oversight there has been on my part. Maybe there are other more fully aware people, so more power to them, but those who aren't should definitely make themselves aware. Other than that, I can't think of major changes. I mean, customs and immigration 
people treat you the same for better or for worse. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> mm, uh, thanks for sharing that. And it wasn't until last year that I actually learned about the, the home residency requirement because one of my husband's colleagues finished her medical residency in the U.S. and she had to go back to uh, St. Lucia unless she could find a very special visa and get a sponsor. It's been a very uh, stressful and expensive process for her. And I didn't know about any of these things before she shared them personally with me. So I'm, I'm happy that you were able to find an awesome position. Clearly, they appreciate your scholarship and, you know, what you bring to the university. And what I'm wondering is what is up next for Dr. Bendari? I'm currently working on, you know, writing a book that's based on my dissertation research. It's this proposed book is a little bit more narrowly focused on petty corruption in the tourism market where I worked in Agra and explores or approaches corruption not through not necessarily through the exchange of money uh, for favor that occurs but rather through uh, the emotions and kind of affective relations that it generates so these range from feelings of anxiety to sometimes anger and frustration and a sort of bonhomie and all of that so yep that's on the cards i'm in talk with a couple of publishing houses regarding that so fingers crossed fingers crossed indeed and i guess so you'll probably do that back in india once this this visiting position is yes. done yes yes i'm sort of in the process of expecting to hear back from a couple of research fellowships that i've applied for because i think it would be a good time to do some follow up research in agra and see how things have changed if at all that's a great idea also i want to go back just a little bit. You had mentioned that international graduate students should really think about where they can get scholarships from. Mm -hmm. So do you, I know it was probably a while ago that you did your fieldwork, but do you remember what grants, granting agencies were best for international students or can you give them a some advice on where to find that information? I do not know if there is a resource that lists all the available opportunities. But what I did was sort of mix and match a couple of fellowships that spoke to uh, your areas of research, you know, so economic, since I was working on the market, I looked at uh, scholarships that would be more interested in funding uh, stuff like that, research in, in markets or exploring those economic concepts or moving away from anthropology a little bit. You know, one should be open to that should the need arise. And yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's a good way of looking for fellowship, uh, not necessarily by the discipline, but, you know, your narrow research areas and interests. Mm, that's smart advice for everyone. <laughs> So is there anything that we didn't ask about that you'd like to share, you know, about your research, about the process of obtaining postdocs or about immigration and visa issues in academia? I wish I could. I wish I could say something more professional about the visa process, but bureaucracy is sort of its own ball game. So I guess other than saying that make yourself aware of what each visa means. I don't think I can speak with any kind of expertise on that. But um, going back to sort of an emotive issue for me, uh, I flagged this earlier about consistent issues that international scholars come up with about 
the spoken and written word. And I just want to say that I really hope everyone will retain their voice and its distinctness because it's absolutely worth it, even though grad school can be uh, sometimes challenging with that. But, you know, there comes a time in every academic's life, hopefully, when they can write in their own voice. And, you know, it would be a shame to not have access to this voice when you can use it. That is great advice. And I think that's so true when you're going through the PhD process. Sometimes you have to, because you're working with an advisor, you have to sort of listen to the different direction you're getting. And a lot of that direction is also Mm -hmm. about voice and how you write your dissertation. But then afterwards, you become a scholar and you get to choose what type of voice you use for your research. Right. All right. So last thing, we always ask our visitors to share with us books, shows, or podcasts that they're currently watching or reading or they recommend for our Ebony Tower syllabus. So what you got, ready? I'm about to start reading this book. It's called Delhi's Meatscapes uh, by Zareen Ahmed, and it explores the butcher community in North India and all of the associated stigma, economic gains, and political risks that... um, are attached with the work that they do. I'm really looking forward to this book. And what shows? Oh, I've recently started watching uh, Black Earth Rising on Netflix. I think it's a British teleseries about the Rwandan genocide. And it kind of implicates the global powers that be in this event. I do listen to The Ebony Tower as my podcast list. So we thank you for that. Uh, and shout out to you for coming on. We'll definitely, do you have any social media links or anything I, that you want to share, any research you want to share that we can link to our listeners? I guess there is the usual LinkedIn and Academia and ResearchGate accounts. Yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't really get to talk about this, Riddy, but your research is so fascinating. And um, a lot of the students uh, right now where I'm teaching at Mm -hmm. are really interested in corruption and issues like informal leadership and bureaucracy. So sounds like great stuff. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this. Thank you. And for our listeners, continue listening in. Follow us on Twitter at the Ebony Tower underscore. Follow us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook so you can get updates and continue listening in. Bye. If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.theebonytower.com, or email us at info at Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.